0: Chapter forty four of Unknown to History by Charlotte Mary Young. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tanika, Madison, Alabama. On the Humber master talbot had done considerately in arranging that cicely should at least begin her journey on a pillion behind himself for her anguish of suppressed weeping unfitted her to guide a horse and would have attracted the attention of any serving-man behind whom he could have placed her whereas she could lay her head against his shoulder and feel a kind of dreary repose there he would have gone by the more direct way to hull through lincoln but that he feared that February Fieldyke would have rendered the Fens impassable, so he directed his course more to the north-west. Cicely was silent, crushed, but more capable of riding than of anything else. In fact, the air and motion seemed to give her a certain relief. He meant to halt for the night at a large inn in Nottingham. There was much stir in the court, and it seemed to be full of the train of some great noble Richard knew not whether to be glad or sorry when he perceived the shrewsbury colours and the silver mastiff badge, and was greeted by a cry of, "'Master Richard of Bridgefield!' Two or three retainers of higher degree came round him as he rode into the yard, and, while demanding his news, communicated their own that my lord was on his way to Fotheringay to preside at the execution of the Queen of Scots. He could feel Cicely's shudder as he lifted her off her horse, and he replied repressively, "'I am bringing my daughter from thence.' "'Come in and see my lord,' said the gentleman. "'He is a woeful man at the work that is put on him.' Lord Shrewsbury did indeed look sad, almost broken, as he held out his hand to Richard, and said, "'This is a piteous errand, cousin, on which I am bound. And thou, my young kinswoman, thou didst not succeed with her majesty.' She is sick with grief and weariness, said Richard. I would fain take her to her chamber. The evident intimacy of the new-comers with so great a personage as my lord procured for them better accommodation than they might have otherwise have had, and Richard obtained for Cicely a tiny closet within the room where he himself was to sleep. He even contrived that she should be served alone, partly by himself, partly by the hostess, a kind motherly woman, to whom he committed her while he supped with the earl, and was afterwards called into his sleeping-chamber to tell him of his endeavours at treating with Lord and Lady Talbot, and also to hear his lamentations over the business he had been sent upon. He had actually offered to make over his office as Earl Marshal to Burgie for the nonce, but as he said that all of the nobles in England such work should fall to the lot of him, who had been for fourteen years the poor lady's host, and knew her admirable patience and sweet condition, was truly hard." moreover he was joined in the commission with the earl of kent a sour puritan who would rejoice in making her drink to the dregs of the cup of bitterness he was sick at heart with the thought richard represented that he would at least be able to give what comfort could be derived from mildness and compassion not i not i said the poor man always weak not with those harsh yoke-fellows kent and paulet to drive me on and that vile beale to report to the privy council any strain of mercy is mere treason what can i do you would do much my lord if you would move them to restore for these last hours to her those faithful servants melville and Dupreux, whom paulet hath seen fit to seclude from her it is rank cruelty to let her die without the sacraments of her church when her conscience would not let her accept ours. "'It is true, Richard, over-true. I will do what I can, but I doubt me whether I shall prevail, where Paulet looks on a mass as mere idolatry, and will not brook that it should be offered in his house. But come you back with me, kinsman. We will send old master Purvis to take your daughter safely home.' Richard, of course, refused, and at the same time, thinking an explanation necessary and due to the earl, disclosed to him that Cicely was no child of his, but a near kinswoman of the Scottish Queen whom it was desirable to place out of Queen Elizabeth's reach for the present, adding that there had been love-passages between her and his son Humphrey, who intended to wed her and see some foreign service lord shrewsbury offered at first some offence at having been kept in ignorance all these years of such a fact and wondered what his countess would say marvelled too that his cousin should consent to his son's throwing himself away on a mere stranger of perilous connection and going off to foreign wars But the good nobleman was a placable man, and always considerably influenced by the person who addressed him, and he ended by placing the mastiff at Richard's disposal to take the young people to Scotland or Holland, or wherever they might wish to go. This decided Mr. Talbot on making at once for the seaport, and accordingly he left behind him the horse which was to serve as a token to his son that such was his course. Cicely had been worn out with her day's journey, and slept late and sound, so that she was not ready to leave her chamber till the Earl and his retinue were gone, and thus she was spared actual contact with him who was to doom her mother, and see that doom carried out. She was recruited by rest, and more ready to talk than on the previous day, but she was greatly disappointed to find that she might not be taken to Bridgefield. "'If only I could be with Mother Susan for one hour!' she sighed. "'Would that thou couldst, my poor maid,' said Richard. "'The mother hath the trick of comfort.' "'Twas not comfort I thought of. None can give me that,' said the poor girl. "'But she would teach me how to be a good wife to Humphrey.' These words were a satisfaction to Richard, who had begun to feel somewhat jealous for his son's sake, and to doubt whether the girl's affection rose to the point of requiting the great sacrifice made for his sake though truly in those days parents were not wont to be solicitous as to the mutual attachment between a betrothed pair. However, Cicely's absolute resignation of herself and her fate into Humphrey's hands, without even a question, and with entire confidence and peace, was evidence enough that her heart was entirely his. Nay, had been his, throughout all the little flights of ambition now so entirely passed away, without apparently a thought on her part." It was on the Friday forenoon, a day very unlike the last entrance into Hull, that they again entered the old town in the brightness of a crisp frost, but poor Cicely could not but contrast her hopeful mood of November with her present overwhelming sorrow, where, however, there was one drop of sweetness. Her foster-father took her again to good Mr. Heatherthwaite's, according to the previous invitation, and was rejoiced to see that the joyous welcome of oil of gladness awoke a smile and the little girl being well trained in soberness and discretion did not obtrude upon her grief stern puritan as he was the minister himself contained his satisfaction that the papist woman was to die and never reign over england until he was out of hearing of the pale maiden who had strange as it seemed to him loved her enough to be almost broken-hearted at her death richard saw Goatly and set him to prepare the mastiff for an immediate voyage her crew somewhat like those of a few modern yachts were permanently attached to her and lived in the neighbourhood of the wharf so that under the personal superintendence of one who was as much loved and looked up to as captain talbot all was soon in a state of forwardness and gillingham made himself very useful When darkness put a stop to the work, and supper was being made ready, Richard found time to explain matters to Mr. Heatherthwaite, for his honourable mind would not permit him to ask his host, unawares, to perform an office that might possibly be construed as treasonable. In spite of the preparation which he had already received through Collet's communications, the minister's wonder was extreme. "'Daughter to the Queen of Scots, say you, sir? Yonder, modest, shamefast maiden of such seemly carriage and gentle speech?' richard smiled and said my good friend had you seen that poor lady to whom god be merciful as i have done you would know that what is sweetest in our Sicily's outward woman is derived from her for the inner graces i cannot but trace them to mine own good wife mr heatherthwaite seemed at first hardly to hear him so overpowered was he with the notion that the daughter of her whom he was in the habit of classing with athaliah and herodias was in his house resting on the innocent pillow of oil of gladness he made his guest recount to him the steps by which the discovery had been made and at last seemed to embrace the idea then he asked whether master talbot were about to carry the young lady to the protection of her brother in scotland and when the answer was that it might be poor protection even if conferred and that by all accounts the court of scotland was by no means a place in which to leave a lonely damsel with no faithful guardian the minister asked how then will you bestow the maiden In that, sir, I came to ask you to aid me. My son Humphrey is following on our steps, leaving Fotheringay so soon as his charge there is ended, and I ask of you to wed him to the maid, whom we will then take to Holland, when he will take service with the States. The amazement of the clergyman was redoubled, and he began at first to plead with Richard that a perilous overleaping ambition was leading him thus to mate his son with an evil though a royal race. At this Richard smiled and shook his head, pointing out that the very last thing any of them desired was that Cicely's birth should be known, and that even if it were, her mother's merit was very questionable. It was no ambition, he said, that actuated his son. But you saw for yourself how, nineteen years ago, the little lad welcomed her as his little sister come back to him. That love hath grown up with him when at fifteen years old he learnt that she was a nameless stranger his first cry was that he would wed her and give her his name never hath his love faltered and even when this misfortune of her rank was known and he lost all hope of gaining her while her mother bade her renounce him his purpose was even still to watch over and guard her and at the end beyond all our expectations they have had her mother's dying blessing and entreaty that he would take her "'Sir, do you give me your word for that?' "'Yea, Master Heatherthwaite, as I am a true man. "'Mind you, worldly matters look as different to a poor woman "'who knoweth the headsman is in the house "'as to one who hath her head on her dying pillow. "'This Queen had devised plans for sending our poor sis abroad "'to her French and Lorraine kindred, "'with some of the French ladies of her train. "'Heaven forbid!' broke out Heatherthwaite in horror. "'The rankest of papists!' "'Even so!' and with recommendations to give her in marriage to some adventurous prince, whom the Spaniards might abet in working woe to us in her name. But when she saw how staunch the child is in believing as mine own good dame taught her, she saw no doubt that this would be mere giving her over to be persecuted and mewed in a convent. Then the woman hath some boughs of mercy, though a papist. She even saith that she doubteth not that such as live honestly and faithfully by the light that is in them shall be saved.' So when she saw she prevailed nothing with the maid, she left off her endeavours. Moreover, my son not only saved her life, but won her regard by his faith and honour. And she called him to her, and even besought him to be her daughter's husband. I came to you, reverend sir, as one who has known from the first that the young folk are no kin to one another, and as I think the peril to you is small, I deem that you will do them this office. Otherwise I must take her to Holland and see them wedded by a stranger there.' Mr. Heatherthwaite was somewhat touched, but he sat and considered, perceiving that to marry the young lady to a loyal Englishman was the safest way of hindering her from falling into the clutches of a popish prince. But he still demurred, and asked how Mr. Talbot could talk of the mere folly of love, and for its sake let his eldest son and heir become a mere exile and fugitive, cut off it might be from home. "'For that matter, sir,' said Richard, "'my son is not one to loiter about, as the lubberly heir cumbering the land at home.' he would so long as i am spared in health and strength be doing service by land or sea and i trust that by the time he is needed at home all this may be so forgotten that Sis may return safely the maid hath been our child too long for us to risk her alone and for such love being weak and foolish surely sir it was the voice of one greater than you or i that bade a man leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife Mr. Heatherthwaite still murmured something about youth and lightly undertaken, and Master Talbot observed with a smile that when he had seen Humphrey he might judge as to the lightness of purpose. Richard, meanwhile, was watching somewhat anxiously for the arrival of his son, who, he had reckoned, would make so much more speed than was possible for Cis, that he might almost have overtaken them if the fatal business had not been delayed longer than he had seen reason to anticipate— However, these last words had not long been out of his mouth, when a man's footsteps, eager, yet with a tired sound and with the clank of spurs, came along the paved way outside, and there was a knock at the door. Someone else had been watching, for as the street-door was open, Cicely sprang forward as Humphrey held out his arms. Then, as she rested against his breast, he said, so that she alone could hear, her last words to me were, "'Give her my love and blessing, and tell her my joy is come, such joy as I never knew before.' Then they knew the deed was done, and Richard said, "'God have mercy on her soul!' Nor did Mr. Heatherthwaite rebuke him. Indeed there was no time, for Humphrey exclaimed, "'She is swooning!' He gathered her in his arms, and carried her where they lighted him, laying her on Oyle's little bed, but she was not entirely unconscious, and rallied her senses so as to give him a reassuring look, not quite a smile, and yet wondrously sweet, even in the eyes of others.' Then, as the lamp flashed on his figure, she sprang to her feet, all else forgotten in the exclamation, "'O Humphrey, thou art hurt! What is it? Sit thee down!' They then saw that his face was indeed very pale and jaded, and that his dress was muddied from head to foot, and in some places there were marks of blood. But as she almost pushed him down on the chest beside the bed, he said in a voice, hoarse and sunk, betraying weariness, "'Nought, naught, sis!' Only my beast fell with me going down a hill and lamed himself, so that I had to lead him the last four or five miles. Moreover, this cut on my hand must needs break forth bleeding more than I knew in the dark, or I had not frighted thee by coming in such a sorry plight.' And he in his turn gazed reassuringly into her eyes, as she stood over him, anxiously examining, as if she scarce durst trust him, that if stiff and bruised at all it mattered not. Then she begged a cup of wine for him, and sent oil for water and linen, and Humphrey had to abandon his hand to her, to be cleansed and bound up, neither of them uttering a word more than needful, as she knelt by the chest, performing this work with skilful hands, though there was now and then a tremor over her whole frame. "'Now, dear maid,' said Richard, "'thou must let him come with us and don some dry garments. Then thou shalt see him again.' "'Rest and food. He needs them.' said Sis in a voice weak and tremulous, though the self-restraint of a princely nature strove to control it. "'Take him, father. Methinks I cannot hear more to-night. He will tell me all when we are away together. I would be alone, and in the dark. I know he is come, and you are caring for him. That is enough, and I can still thank God.' Her face quivered, and she turned away, nor did Humphrey dare to shake her further by another demonstration, but stumbled after his father to the minister's chamber, where some incongruous clerical attire had been provided for him, since he disdained the offer of supping in bed. Mr. Heatherthwaite was much struck with the undemonstrativeness of their meeting, for there was high esteem for austerity in the Puritan world, in contrast to the utter want of self-restraint shown by the more secular characters. When Humphrey presently made his appearance with his father's cloak wrapped over the minister's clean shirt and nether garments, Richard said, "'Son Humphrey, this good gentleman who baptised our sis would fain be certain that there is no likeness of purpose in this thy design.' "'Nay, nay, Mr. Talbot,' broke in the minister, "'I spake ere I had seen this gentleman. From what I have now beheld, I have no doubt that, be she whom she may, it is a marriage made and blessed in heaven.' "'I thank you, sir.' said Humphrey gravely, "'It is my one hope fulfilled.' They spoke no more till he had eaten, for he was much spent, having never rested more than a couple of hours, and not slept at all since leaving Fotheringay. He had understood by the colour of the horse left at Nottingham which road to take, and at the hostel at Hull had encountered Gillingham, who directed him on to Mr. Heatherthwaite's. What he brought himself to tell of the last scene at Fotheringay has been mostly recorded by history, and need not here be dwelt upon— when burgoyne and melville fell back unable to support their mistress along the hall to the scaffold the queen had said to him thou wilt do me this last service and had leant on his arm along the crowded hall and had taken that moment to speak those last words for cicely she had blessed james openly and declared her trust that he would find salvation if he lived well and sincerely in the faith he had chosen with him she had secretly blessed her other child Humphrey was much shaken, and could hardly command his voice to answer the questions of Master Heatherthwaite, but he so replied to them that, one by one, the phrases and turns were relinquished, which the worldly man had prepared for a Sunday sermon on, "'Go see now this accursed woman, and bury her, for she is a king's daughter,' and he even began to consider of choosing for his text something that would bid his congregation not to judge after the sight of their eyes, nor condemn after the hearing of their ears." When Humphrey had eaten and drunk and the ruddy hue was returning to his cheek, Mr. Heatherthwaite discovered that he must speak with his churchwarden that night. Probably the pleasure of communicating the tidings that the deed was accomplished added force to the consideration that the father and son would rather be alone together, for he lighted his lantern with alacrity and carried off dust and ashes with him then Humphrey had more to tell which brooked no delay. On the day after the departure of his father in Sicily, Will Cavendish had arrived, and Humphrey had been desired to demand from the prisoner an immediate audience for that gentleman. Mary had said, "'This is an the child. Call him in, Humphrey.' And as Cavendish had passed the guard, he had struck his old comrade on the shoulder and observed, "'What gulls we have at Hallamshire!' he had come out of his conference fuming and desiring to hear from Humphrey whether he were aware of the imposture that had been put on the queen and upon them all and to which yonder stubborn woman still chose to cleave little sis talbot supposing herself a queen's daughter and they all even grave master richard being duped it was too much for will a gentleman so nearly connected with the privy council was not to be deceived like these simple soldiers and sailors though it suited queen mary's purposes to declare the maid to be in sooth her daughter and to refuse to disown her he supposed it was to embroil england for the future that she left such a seed of mischief and old Paulet had been fool enough to let the girl leave the castle, whereas Cavendish's orders had been to be as secret as possible lest the mischievous suspicion of the existence of such a person should spread, but to arrest her and bring her to London as soon as the execution should be over, when, as he said, no harm would happen to her, provided she would give up the pretensions with which she had been deceived. "'It would have been safer for you both,' said poor Queen Mary to afterwards, "'if I had denied her.' "'But I could not disown my own poor child, or prevent her from yet claiming royal rights. "'Moreover, I have learnt enough of you, Talbot, to know "'that you would not owe your safety to falsehood from a dying woman.' but Will's conceit might be quite as effectual. He was under orders to communicate the matter to no one not already aware of it, and as above all things he desired to see the execution as the most memorable spectacle he was likely to behold in his life, and he believed Sicily to be safe at Bridgefield, he thought it unnecessary to take any farther steps until that should be over. Humphrey had listened to all with what countenance he might, and gave as little sign as possible— but when the tragedy had been consummated, and he had seen the fair head fall, and himself withdrawn poor little Bijou, from beneath his dead mistress's garment, handing him to Jean Kennedy he had, with blood still curdling with horror, gone down to the stables, taken his horse, and ridden away, there would no doubt be pursuit so soon as Richard and Cicely were not to be found at Bridgefield, but there was a space in which to act, and Mr. Talbot at once said, "'The mastiff is well-nigh ready to sail.' ye must be wedded to-morrow morn and go on board without delay they judged it better not to speak of this to the poor bride in her heavy grief and Humphrey, having heard from their little hostess that mistress cicely lay quite still and sent him her loving greeting consented to avail himself of the hospitable minister's own bed hoping as he confided to his father that very weariness would hinder him from seeing the block, the axe and the convulsed face that had haunted him on the only previous time when he had tried to close his eyes long before day cicely heard her father's voice bidding her awake and dress herself and handing in a light the call was welcome, for it had been a night of strange dreams and sadder wakings to the sense it had come at last, yet the one comfort, Humphrey, is near. She dressed herself in those plain black garments she had assumed in London, and in due time came down to where her father awaited her. She was pale, silent, and passive, and obeyed mechanically as he made her take a little food. She looked about, as if for some one, and he said, Humphrey will meet us anon. Then he himself put on her cloak hood and muffler she was like one in a dream never asking where they were going and thus they left the house there was light from a waning moon and by it he led her to the church it was a strange wedding in that morning moonlight streaming in at the east window of that grand old church and casting the shadows of the columns and arches on the floor only aided by one wax light which as mr heatherthwaite took care to protest was not placed on the holy table out of superstition but because he could not see without it Indeed, the table stood lengthways in the centre aisle, and would have been bare even of a white cloth had not Richard begged for a communion for the young pair to speed them on their perilous way, and Mr. Heatherthwaite, almost under protest, consented, since a sea voyage and warlike service in a foreign land lay before them. But except that he wore no surplice, he had resigned himself to master Richard on that most unnatural morning, and stifled his inmost sighs when he had to pronounce the name Bride, given not by himself, but by some Romish priest, when the bridegroom, with the hand wounded for Queen Mary's sake, gave a ruby ring, most unmistakably coming from that same perilous quarter, and above all when the pair and the father knelt in deep reverence. Yet their devotion was evidently so earnest and so heartfelt, that he knew not how to blame it, and he could not but bless them with his whole heart as he walked down with them to the wharf. All were silent, except that Cicely once paused and said she wanted to speak to father. He came to her side, and she took his arm instead of Humphrey's. Sir, she said, it has come to me that now my sweet mother is left alone, it would be no small joy to her, and of great service to our good host's little daughter, if oil of gladness could take my place at home for a year or two. None will do that, sis. but there is much that would be well in the notion, and I will consider of it. "'She is a maid of good conditions, and the mother is lonesome.' His consideration resulted in his making the proposal much startling, though greatly gratifying. Master Heatherthwaite, who thanked him, talked of his honour for that discreet and goodly woman, Mistress Susan, and said he must ponder and pray upon it, and would reply when Mr. Talbot returned from his voyage. At the wharf lay the mastiff's boat in charge of Gervase and Gillingham— all three stepped into it together the most silent bride and bridegroom perhaps that the humber had ever seen only each of the three wrung the hand of the good clergyman at that moment all the bells in hull broke forth with a joyous peal which by the association made the bride look up with a smile her husband forced one in return but his father's eyes which she could not see filled with tears he knew it was an exultation at her mother's death, and they hurried into the boat lest she should catch the purport of the shouts that were beginning to arise as the townsfolk awoke to the knowledge that their enemy was dead. The fires of Smithfield were in the remembrance of this generation. The cities of Flanders were writhing under the Spanish yoke. The richest spoils of Mexico, the stoutest hearts of Spain, were already mustering to reduce England to the condition of Antwerp or Harlem and only Elizabeth's life had seemed to lie between them and her who was bound by her religion to bring all this upon the peaceful land.' No wonder those who knew not the issue of cruel deceits and treacheries that had worked the final ruin of the captive, and believed her guilty of fearful crimes, should have burst forth in a wild tumult of joy, such as saddened even the Protestant soul of Mr. Heatherthwaite as he turned homewards after giving his blessing to the mournful young girl whom the boat was bearing over the muddy waters of the hull. They soon had her on board, but the preparations were hardly yet complete, nor could the vessel make her way down the river till the evening tide. It was a bright, clear day, and a seat on deck was arranged for the lady, where she sat with Humphrey beside her, holding her cloak round her, and telling her, strange theme for a bridal day, all he thought well to tell her of those last hours, when Mary had truly shown herself purified by her long patience, and exalted by the hope that her death had in it somewhat of martyrdom. His father, meantime, superintended the work of the crew, being extremely anxious to lose no time and to sail before night, Mr. Heatherthwaite's anxiety brought him on board again, for he wanted to ask more questions about the bridgefield doings ere beginning his ponderings and his prayers respecting his decision for his little daughter. Nor had he taken his final leave when the anchor was at length weighed, and the ship had passed by the strange old gables, timbered houses, and open lofts that bounded the harbour out from the whole river into the humber itself, while both the Talbots breathed more freely. But as the chill air of evening made itself felt, They persuaded Cicely to let her husband take her down to her cabin. It was at this moment in the deepening twilight that the ship was hailed, and a boat came alongside, and there was a summons, in the Queen's name, and a slightly made lean figure in black came up the side. He was accompanied by a stout man, apparently a constable. There was a moment's pause, then the newcomer said, "'Kinsman Talbot!' "'I count no kindred with betrayers, Cuthbert Langston,' said Richard, drawing himself up with folded arms. "'Scorn me not, Richard Talbot,' was the reply. "'You stood my friend once when none other did so, and for that cause I have hindered much hurt to you and yours. But for me you had been in a London jail for three weeks past. Nor do I come to you to do evil now. Give up the wench, and your name shall never be brought forward, since the matter is to be private.' "'Behold a warrant from the council empowering me to bring before them "'the person of Bride Hepburn, otherwise called Cicely Talbot.' "'Man of treacheries and violence,' said Mr. Heatherthwaite, "'standing forward, an imposing figure in his full black gown and white ruff. "'Go back! The lady is not for thy double-dealing, "'nor is there now any such person as either Bride Hepburn or Cicely Talbot.' "'I cry you, mercy,' sneered Langston. "'I see how it is.' "'I shall have to bear your reverence likewise away for a treasonable act "'in performing the office of matrimony for a person of royal blood "'without the consent of the Queen, and your reverence knows the penalty.' "'At that instant there rang from the forecastle a never-to-be-forgotten "'howl of triumphant hatred and fury, and with a spring like that of a tiger, "'Gillingham bounded upon him with a shout, "'Remember Babington!' and grappled with him, dragging him backwards to the bulwark. Richard and the constable both tried to seize the fiercely struggling forms, but in vain. They were over the side in a moment, and there was a heavy splash into the muddy waters of the Humber, thick with a down come of swollen rivers thrown back by the flowing tide. Humphrey came dashing up from below, demanding who was overboard and ready to leap to the rescue, wherever any should point in the darkness, but his father withheld him nor indeed was there sound or eddy to be perceived it is the manifest judgment of god said mr Heatherthwaite in a low awe-stricken voice but the constable cried aloud that a murder had been done in resisting the queen's warrant With a ready gesture the minister made Humphrey understand that he must keep his wife in the cabin, and Richard at the same time called Mr. Heatherthwaite and all present to witness that murder, as it undoubtedly was, it had not been in resisting the Queen's warrant, but in private revenge of the servant Harry Gillingham for his master Babington, whom he believed to have been betrayed by this gentleman. "'It appeared that the constable knew neither the name of the gentleman, nor whom the warrant mentioned. He had only been summoned in the Queen's name to come on board the mastiff to assist in securing the person of a young gentlewoman, but who she was, or why she was to be arrested, the man did not know. He saw no lady on deck, and he was by no means disposed to make any search, and the presence of Master Heatherthwaite likewise impressed him much with the belief that all was right with the gentleman.' of course it would have been his duty to detain the mastiff for an inquiry into the matter but the poor man was extremely ill at ease in the vessel and among the retainers of my lord of shrewsbury and in point of fact they might all have been concerned in a crime of much deeper dye without his venturing to interfere He saw no one to arrest the warrant was lost the murderer was dead and he was thankful enough to be returned to his boat with master richard talbot's assurance that it was probable that no inquiry would be made but that if it were the pilot would be there to bear witness of his innocence and that he himself should return in a month at latest with the mastiff master heatherthwaite consoled the constable further by saying he would return in his boat and speak for him if there were any inquiry after the other passenger "'I must speak my farewells here,' he said, "'and trust we shall have no coil to meet you on your return, Master Richard.' "'But for her,' said Humphrey, "'I could not let my father face it alone, when she is in safety. "'Tush, lad!' said his father. "'Such plotters as yonder poor wretch had become "'are not such choice prizes as to be inquired for. "'Men are only too glad to be rid of them when their foul work is done.' "'So farewell, good Master Heatherthwaite.' added humfrey with thanks for this day's work i have read of good and evil geniuses or angels be they which they may haunting us for life and striving for the mastery methinks my sis hath found both on the same Humber which brought her to us nay go not forth with pagan or popish follies on thy tongue young man said heatherthwaite But rather pray that the blessing of the Holy One, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of thy father, may be with thee and thine in this strange land, and bring thee safely back in his own time. And surely he will bless the faithful.' And Richard Talbot said Amen. End of chapter forty four. Recording by Tanika, Madison, Alabama.